Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes. We've been looking at this book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. We're also going to read chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is the reading of God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. This is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is verse 12 of chapter 2. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is no gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is a vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all we have had long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated my life because what is done under the heaven was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Amen. This is a reading God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom so that we can know your will and your desire. We also pray for your spirit to apply this wisdom to us. And I pray, God, that you would lead us in all understanding. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, uh, this Tuesday, I was walking to uh, the City Light office. We have a small office here in downtown in a tower, a business tower. And as I was walking in, I realized it was bo- they were boarding up the entire bottom of the building. All the glass was being boarded up. And they had never done this before, not the entire year. And I was thinking to myself, why are they doing this now? And I was trying to go through the reasons why they would be boarding up the building. I was thinking, is it possibly the Lakers sell- or the uh, Dodgers winning tonight? Are they preparing for some kind of parade slash riot? I was thinking, are they gearing up for the elections this coming week? Unrest from it. I was thinking, is there some kind of video happening? Is there something happening? And it was very telling that I had, you know, that they're bracing for a riot and I had no idea what it was about. And this is just a kind of a parable of 2020. There's so many things happening. So many things disordered that I, I can't really understand what it is. Uh, which one is it? And this has been a season of unrest, of things feeling upside down, of franticness 
And this is a season in which people, they need wisdom. You know, what do we need during times like this? Some people think that we need information. But we've been, we're bombarded with all kinds of information. You're bombarded with information from the media, social media, family, friends telling you things, telling you, sharing articles with you, trying to make you think a certain way. We're bombarded with information. But along with information, there's misinformation, lies, conspiracy theories. Uh, and we, we are bombarded. With, what we need during this time is not more information. What we need is wisdom. Wisdom is this ability to discern truth from error. We need wisdom for life. We need wisdom to know who to vote for. We need wisdom for to know how how do I educate my kids during quarantine? You know, how do I discern whether I let them see certain families or not? Because I have to have a, some kind of balance. We need wisdom for those things. We need discernment. This is a time in our country and time in our life when we, we need wisdom desperately. We need to know the right thing to do at the right time. And we're studying the wisdom books because that's what it's all about. It's about finding discernment and understanding our times, understanding what is right. And to do that, we're looking at a specific part of the wisdom book called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom and it it's by a professor. This professor is exploring life and giving, dropping knowledge and giving us a way to be wise. So today as we look at exploring this idea of wisdom, what we want to see is that there are two types of wisdom. There are two ways to get wisdom. There are two outcomes to searching and living out of that wisdom. So today as we look at this first Chapter of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at two points. The wisdom of the age and the wisdom of God. Ecclesiastes says there are two ways to get wisdom. Two types of wisdom. They lead to different paths. And finally, how can we live and breathe and experience the the wisdom of God? First point is this, the wisdom of this age. Last week I introduced the book of Ecclesiastes. The main character in this book is the professor. The Hebrew word is Kohelet. And the professor has an interesting thesis and an interesting way of of exploring wisdom. He examines life under the sun. Most of the Bible is an examination of life from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective. But Ecclesiastes is the one book which is about life under the sun. And that's the idea of life without God. The professor wants to explore life without God. Before you can get to know the wisdom of God, you need to know the wisdom of this world and where that leads to. So the professor says, let's let's go. Let's do it. Let's explore life. If this is all we had. In the coming weeks, the professor explores pleasure. Does everything, fulfills every desire that he has. He's going to explore work and career. And creativity, and he's gonna build for him the most impressive resume. He's gonna explore all these things under the sun. But before he does all that, he explores this idea of wisdom and knowledge. He's gonna explore everything there is to know about life. 
and it's going to explore wisdom according to this world. Wisdom is, as I said, the key to life. You know, most of the questions that we have in life are wisdom issues. Who should I marry? Who should I vote for? How should I raise my kids? Should I quit my job? Those are all wisdom issues. Where do you get your wisdom from? How do we get, how do we live a wise life? Here in Ecclesiastes, the professor explores wisdom of this world under the heavens. What does this world have to offer about a wise life? He uses the pronoun I all throughout uh, this chapter. It's one man's pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 12, it says the professor says he applies his heart to seek and search out wisdom. Wisdom isn't something you just get with age. It's something you have to seek. You have to pursue it. You don't just get wise by being old. There are 100-year-old fools, and there are young men and women who are wise because they're pursuing it. Wisdom is something you've got to pursue. You have to study. So this is what the professor does. He reads all the books. He goes to all the universities. He does his own investigation and interviews. If he was living today, he would go and study at all the major universities. Scour journals and studies. Listen to every podcast. Go to every TED lecture. Interview scientists and scholars and study under them. This is what he does. He he explores everything. But notice the other thing he does. In verse 17, he also explores madness and folly. What's that about? Uh, Professor is not just going to prestigious universities and studying with the scholars and the scientists. He's also listening to the word on the streets. He's listening to alternative views of knowledge and understanding. He's listening to conspiracy theories. He's scouring the Internet to go on random blogs, to go on and see what they're talking about. He don't. He doesn't just go to the ivory tower universities. He also goes to Skid Row. He interviews people who are broken, down on their luck. He listens to what they have to say about life. The professor goes high and low. He goes to the universities. He goes to Skid Row. He goes to the academics and scientists. He listens to the conspiracy theories. He's all over the place. He wants to get a breath of knowledge, everything under the sun. And what's the bottom line? After all of that, he says, well, this is my conclusion. After spending a lifetime, years, researching in verse 16, he says, this is a conclusion to it. Uh, he says in verse 13, it was an unhappy business. He says, that wasn't a lot of fun, what I just did. In verse 17, he says, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, man, this was this was not fun at all. You know, some of the unhappiest people I know, and I've experienced this as well, are people working on a dissertation. Have you ever met someone working on a dissertation? They're engaged in endless research. If you're doing doctoral studies, there's a there's an endless amount of work and research and books to read and other dissertations. There's an endless amount of information to digest. And when you're writing a dissertation, you have to have a unique take. 
And as the professor says before, there's nothing new under the sun. You're supposed to see all of this research and have a new novel take on it. That's hard work. That's a lot to do. I was talking to a doctoral student. He said that at the end of all of his research, he had forgotten the stuff he had read in the very beginning of it. His his hard drive of his brain was stuffed with things, and all the first things were erased. In this not pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, um, he says, I've, I'm miserable. Some of the unhappiest people I know are PhD students, people who are in academia. They're researching. It's endless. They're writing. There's no stop to it. There's always more knowledge, more things to do. The professor says, what is the whole point of gaining wisdom if wisdom makes you miserable? At the end of all of that academic research and compiling information, if I'm not happy, what's the whole point of it? This is all there is, and I'm unhappy. Isn't it better to be a happy fool than to be miserable and wise? What's the point? Secondly, the professor says in verse 17, it was striving after the wind, striving after the wind. He uses this poetic uh, image, which is powerful. The wind is a powerful and real force. We saw this last week. The Santa Ana winds are powerful. They were driving, they were driving fires, feeding fires. They're powerful. They're real. They're a force. Imagine trying to chase after the wind. It's, 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 it's futile. I mean, the wind is a real thing, but it's futile to try to chase after the wind. You don't know where it's going. You're not going to make any progress doing that. And that's what the professor says about this pursuit of knowledge and wisdom in this world, that it's endless. It goes on forever. You're never going to be able to harness and get all of it. I was reading about a Nobel Prize winning economist and he admitted recently that he was wrong about globalization. Here's a man at the top of his profession, Nobel Prize winning economist. He said, you know, in retrospect, I was wrong about what it was and what it would do. Add a hole in my theory. And it's telling. There's a limit of how much we can know. No matter how much knowledge you have in any single area, there's so much you do not know. There's an endless amount. There are gaps in our knowledge, no matter what it is. It's an endless pursuit. Who can know everything? Who can be wise even in any one area? It's chasing after the wind. You'll never get there. But here's the third thing. Professor, he's going on about uh, wisdom of this age, and he concedes points, even though he doesn't have to. He says, even if you did have all the knowledge in the world and all the wisdom of the world, which you can't, but even if you did, this the professor argues this in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He says, even if you'd had all the wisdom in this world, it can't change you. You can know all about anything, but does it really change the way that you live and change your behavior in your life. There are all kinds of things that are crooked in our society. There's racism, classism, tribalism. But even if you knew why things were the way they, they were, would that change anything? 
would it would it solve all of those problems? Problem isn't so much our wisdom, but our heart, the human spirit. It's broken. Uh, this last week, I was on my way back from uh, a running group. I had run four miles, and I was on my way back home. And driving along back home, I passed by a Taco Bell. It's my kryptonite. And I was, and I just run, doing something healthy, something for my heart, and I just couldn't help but stop and go through that drive-through. At that drive-through, I found myself ordering uh, extra grande nacho with extra artificial cheese, you know. And in my mind, I should have known, you know, this this is foolishness. Dennis, you had you were given back everything you had worked for. You'd run four miles, you sweated, you you worked hard, and now you're going, you're giving that all back. The height of foolishness. You know, I, I had just run in vain if I'm eating there. And I was trying not to think about that as, as I was going to the drive-thru, trying to block out all those logical thoughts in my mind. Uh, but I couldn't. I just did it. The, my problem wasn't wisdom. It wasn't information. I knew that was stupid. I knew I knew it was foolish to continue to do that. But the heart, as Woody Allen says, the heart wants what it wants. You know, the heart wants what it wants. Knowledge isn't stopping me from that. My problem isn't information. My problem is my heart. The problem with humanity is that we not that we don't know what the right thing to do is, not that we don't know what the right way to live is, the problem is that humanity is broken. Our heart is lost. We're broken spiritually. It's not an intellectual problem that we have a problem with. The final thing that the, the, the professor says is he concedes the spinal point. And he says, even if you had all the wisdom and you can live Totally according to that wisdom, which you can't. And he concedes this, all of these points. He says, even if you could do that impossible thing, he ends with this. What does it matter if you are the wisest person and you lived according to that wisdom and then you died? What did you really gain? In the second chapter, he says this. The wise person has eyes in his head. But the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive... The same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Do you see the logic of the professor? He is dismantling wisdom under this world. He says it's chasing after. We can never get to the end of it. It's an unhappy business. Even if you were to live according to it, he finally argues, well, what's the point? You're going to die and your destiny is just like the destination of the fool. He says, well, it's better to live wise than live foolishly. That's true. But at the end of the day, if the wise person and the foolish person, they come to the same destination, what does it matter? The wise and the fool will die and they will be buried in the same place. And no one will ever know the difference. So what's the point? The professor, he's dismantling this pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. He's saying it's futile. It's chasing after the wind. It doesn't change anything. 
might improve your life somewhat, but the destination is all the same. The chasing after the wind. The professor says that there is the wisdom of this world. It's flawed. It's broken. It doesn't lead anywhere. That's why the professor leads us to the second place, the wisdom of God. There are limitations to human knowledge and wisdom. There's limitations to it. You know, most of us have smartphones in our pocket, and we can look up the answer to almost every single question factually that there is. Push of a button. We can we have all of this knowledge available to us, but has that made us wiser? Has it made us smarter? Has it made us happier? I think most people would argue it has not. All that knowledge that we have, all the the information on the Internet, it has not made us happier. It has not made us wiser. When you look at human, the human project, and you look at all the wisdom of the world, everything that we've learned through the centuries, all of the wisdom of humanity, has it brought us to this utopia in this world? Has it brought us to human life flourishing with all the information and wisdom that we've gleaned through the centuries? Has that brought us to a better world? The answer is it has not. Because that's not really the problem. It's an endless pursuit, the professor argues. We need something else. Ecclesiastes is trying to take us to explore the darkness of the world so that we come to our senses and seek after God's wisdom. And what is God's wisdom? What is it about? In Ecclesiastes 12, we reach the thesis. This is where everything is headed in Ecclesiastes. And this is what the professor says. The end of the matter, all has been heard. This is his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Some people think that, you know, religion and Christianity is just telling you to listen to God. Don't don't pay attention to anything. Just listen to God. Fear God. Read the Bible. That's it. Ecclesiastes, that's not what Ecclesiastes first is about. Ecclesiastes says, hey, before you even come to God, let's explore everything in this world. Let's first see that. Let's see where it ends. Let's explore that. So many people reject the Bible and Christianity. They say, well, it's just trying to close your eyes. That's, that was a temptation of the serpent in the garden in Eden, wasn't it? Serpent said to Adam and Eve, you know, God doesn't have your best. Eat from what tree? The tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. The serpent said, open your eyes. You know, don't fall for this God, trust God bit. You make your own decision. You explore the world. And when you explore the world, man, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to see what life's all about. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Don't trust God for that stuff. Open your eyes. Explore life. Where's that led us? Ecclesiastes says, really open your eyes. Really see this human project of trying to build your life outside of God, trying to find life and wisdom outside of God. See that that leads to death. And Ecclesiastes is bringing us to God's knowledge, God's truth. In the Bible, some people think, well, the Bible is just a series of ancient truths. 
you know, in the New Testament, how does wisdom come down to us? Does God come down to us and show us his wisdom by giving us other other laws, other commandments? No. In the New Testament, wisdom comes down to us in a person. Comes down to us in a person. In Jesus Christ, wisdom is embodied. Colossians 2 verse 3, it says, In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Colossians it says, In Jesus, all the wisdom of God is hidden. It's there for you. You know, wisdom in this world is hard to find. You have to search after it. But in Christ, we have wisdom presented to us. In him, we see wisdom embodied. If you want to know how to live a wise life, look at Jesus. That's the way to live a wise life. This wisdom is countercultural. It's so different from the wisdom of this world and this age. It's upside down. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul lays out how the wisdom of God is contrasted with the wisdom of this age. In fact, they would say that Christianity is foolishness. Colossians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians rather 1, verses 20 to 25. This is what Paul says. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribes? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is writing this letter to a city called Corinth. Corinth was once, in in its day, one of the most important Greek cities. It was, it was the capital or one of the great cities in the Greek civilizations. And the Greeks were known for what? They were known for the philosophers. They were known for their philosophical greats like Plato and Socrates. They're part of this great tradition of thinkers and philosophers. And Paul says to the people in the city, well, where are they now? Where is the wisdom of Plato and Socrates? Has that led to the Greeks triumphing? Why were they not able in their wisdom to save the Greeks from being conquered by the Romans? Where is the debaters? Where are those scholars? And he contrasts this idea of wisdom from Greeks and the Jewish people. The Jewish, uh, the Jewish people, they wanted Miraculous proofs. They demanded signs. If Jesus was, if Jesus was really real, if God is real, we want evidence, signs. The Greeks wanted wisdom. They wanted philosophical arguments. They wanted rhetoric. They wanted things that would persuade people intellectually. During this time, uh, when people don't believe God today, they would say similar things. I want to see signs. I want God to appear. I want to see miraculous things. Or they say, I want intellectual evidence. I want rigorous, logical evidence 
for the existence of God or else I would not believe. Either I want proof, empirical evidence, miraculous signs, or I want airtight, logical proof for the existence of God. I demand those things, the Greeks and the Jews, those ideas. But what does God give us? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God doesn't give us those things. No, he doesn't give that to us. What does he give? Paul says, Christ crucified. That's my evidence. And it's foolishness to the Jewish people who wanted to sign. They didn't think that was evidence. In fact, that was evidence that Jesus was not God. How is a God, their God, supposed to be crucified? That's a curse. The Greeks thought that was foolishness. That's not a persuasive argument to see Jesus died on the cross. How is that persuasive? That's foolishness. It's not evidence. The cross is a key place where the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God differ. I want to show you an image. Uh, it's a painting. It's a 17th century Dutch painting of Jesus on the cross. And in this painting, there are two figures next to Jesus, both John and Mary. And John and Mary are, for the artist, substitutes for the viewer. Uh, we're supposed to be in that painting, looking at Jesus. Some of us are like John, contemplative. We have some reverence for what's happening. But some of us are like Mary, grieving, confused, perplexed by the situation. When you think about the values of our age, uh, when you think about an earthly perspective of the cross, it's foolishness. It's a tragedy. It's suffering. There's no meaning behind it. It's the end. It's the opposite of our value. of The cross is the opposite of the values of our society and our age. In our culture, it's all about looking good and beautiful. The cross, Jesus looked terrible. He was bleeding. In our culture, it's all about comfort and living your best life. Jesus on the cross was living his worst life. Our culture is all about success, achievement. On the cross, Jesus was a failure, failed his disciples. All of his friends left him. Our culture is all about power and politics. Jesus on the cross was powerless. He had lost an election to Barabbas of all people. The people chose Barabbas, not Jesus. He lost that election. He was not reigning as king in the city. He was crucified outside the city where you put the trash. He was not reigning in power. He was powerless. He was not wealthy and beautiful. He was ugly. He was forsaken. And yet God says, that's my wisdom. That's what I'm all about. You might say, well, how is that? How is the cross wisdom? How do we see that? The cross was outwardly ugly, but it was the most beautiful event in human history. You know, there are more paintings of Jesus on the cross than any event in human history. The most painted, the most artistic expressions in our civilization is this one moment when many considered ugly 
humanity has considered in retrospect, that's the most beautiful and profound moment. Because at that moment, God took my place and he was suffering in my stead. At the cross, I realized that God understands my pain, my suffering, that I'm not alone. He is there, a suffering servant. At the cross, we see that God turned the ugliest thing into the most beautiful thing. At the cross, he took my sin so he can accept me as my as a son. At the cross, I know that I am loved and accepted. We said the ultimate problem is the problem of death. But at the cross, Jesus took death and he rose again to new life. So that we too, though we die, can live. You see, the cross is the place where we see the wisdom of God in the clearest form. And we need to feel and experience that wisdom of the cross. We need to apply the wisdom of the cross to all of our life. You might feel ugly. You might feel like a failure. You might feel like God doesn't love you because of how hard your life is. Apply the wisdom of the cross to your life. You are not ugly. You are loved by God, beautiful in his eyes. You are not a failure. If you live a life serving others simply, you're successful. God counts that as a success. That though you lose, Jesus lost, that true power doesn't come in winning elections. It doesn't come in getting ahead. It doesn't come with power. But God works through powerlessness. We need to remember that, especially as we enter into election weeks, that is bound to be tumultuous. Remember the wisdom of the cross. Remember the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the world is that winning is the most important thing. Winning elections, winning votes, getting power. That's the way we move things. That's not the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the cross is that even though we lose, yet we win. That God's power is not through political means, but by his spirit. The king doesn't live in Washington, D.C., and the true judge isn't on the Supreme Court. That's not how power is won in Jesus. Jesus is the true king, the ultimate judge. And even, you know, when you think about the Christian witness, Christians have always thrived when they're disempowered when they're minorities, when they're suffering. It's when we're weak, we're actually strong. It's when we suffer that we lean on Christ. It's when we're weak, we show the world humility, love, unity. That's the means by which we change people's minds and hearts. It's through that soft power. We're to use the, the, to see the wisdom of the cross. We're also to apply all of that and live in light of all of God's wisdom. You know, in the wisdom book, one of the key theses positively of how to live wise is this proverb. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. It's a memory verse. You might have memorized it growing up if you're a Christian. And this is what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on all your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and what he will make your path straight. Proverbs says that all of our life we're not to lean on our own wisdom, our own understanding, but we're to simply in all our ways acknowledge him, and God will lead us. Jesus says that to enter the kingdom of 
heaven, we are to be like little children, to have that childlike spirit and dependence. Yesterday we had um, a trunk or treat event, and um, it was a beautiful thing. And we had uh, a lot of kids. We invited people from the neighborhood, people out of church, their friends. They kind of they came all over. We had a cul-de-sac, and I love seeing the costumes of these little kids. I saw little baby Bruce Lee. I saw little Nico as a construction worker. It's adorable. And I saw twins who were dressed up as Boba. That was great. And we had a good time. And it was adorable seeing kids, you know, children. It's interesting because children, they know the least amount of things. And the smallest things can make them happy. Kids can be so joyful. Adults, they need all kinds of things to make them happy. But kids, not so much. A bag of candy, they're good. They're happy. They're joyful. We talked about the wisest people who pursue knowledge. They can be the most miserable. But guess what? The people who know the least can be the most joyful. Kids don't know a lot, but they're joyful. One of the reasons kids can have so much peace and joy is that they have parents. And their parents can take care of all the big questions in their life. They can just be kids. They can just live in the moment. Their mind is not torn up about all these stuff that's going on. They can just live in the now. They know their parents love them. And you know, that's what I encourage you to think about this week. Live as a child, just relying on your father. God, you got this. There's so much stuff going on. I do trust you. We're called to live as children in the kingdom of God. Trusting him, loving him, leaning on him. We're called not to lean on our own understanding. We're called to be guided by his word and by his spirit. God gives us his word to guide us, but also his spirit. What's the relationship between those two things? First Thessalonians 1.5 says this. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And... When Jesus leaves us, he doesn't just leave us alone. He gives us his words. It's the Bible. But he also gives us his spirit. What does the spirit do? The spirit takes the word of God, the Bible, and makes it alive. The spirit convicts us of, of the truth of God's word. Or does, uh, or it, the spirit weeps for us when we're far away from God. It rejoices with us when we're walking with God. The spirit takes the truth of God and puts it on fire in our heart. We talked about how knowledge doesn't change, the knowledge of this world. We can know all – one person says like this, you can get all A's in school and flunk out of life. In the wisdom of this world, you can get all A's, you can know all the answers, but man, you can flunk out of life. It doesn't make a difference. What, was the, what about the spirit? What the spirit does is not only give us information, the Bible, but the spirit makes a fire in our bones. To God, you are – I feel that you are good. I feel that you're leading me to this good place. I can experience the truth of God. It could be real to me, powerful to me. It can change me. That's what the Spirit does. And we should practically constantly be in the Word and ask God for His Spirit to make that Word clear and beautiful and true. God, would you send your Spirit down? Convict me, guide me, lead me with your truth. 
And this week, would you do that more than ever? Would you ask God, God, help me not to be so much in, in the media, in the blogs, in the conversations, but help me be in your spirit. Help me to be led by your truths. As we close, where do you get your wisdom from? Who are you listening to? Where do you get your your information? Are you saturated by social media, media engagement, blogs, all these conversations around you? You know, there's a place for that. Are you led by God's truth and God's spirit? Are you leaning not on your own understanding, but are you leaning on the wisdom of God? you trusting him. There's a lot to worry about. Uh, but would you rest in him? And, you know, one of the things about wisdom of this world, as I said before, is that you've got to pursue it. You've got to find it. You've got to track down that information. You have to make sure it's right. But here's a final thought I want you to think about. Uh, in Christianity, wisdom is not something you seek, but someone that seeks you. If Jesus is wisdom... Not only, not, it's not that you try to find him, but he finds you. You don't have to search for wisdom. Wisdom is searching for you. He's actually knocking on your door. Trust him. He comes to you in Jesus. God loves you in Jesus. Simply receive him and trust him. This week and all throughout your life, sleep well because God is awake. God is your king. God is your wisdom and your life. Trust him. Lean not on your own understanding, and he will make your path straight. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for loving us. Thank you that you are wisdom in our life. Pray for those of us who feel like we've made a mess out of our life. We've lived foolishly. And we give you thanks, God, that there's a plan for us. And that you've given Christ for us. Thank you that we don't have to try and find you, but you find us. And I pray that, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to receive you, to know you. Pray, God, that you give us wisdom that comes from the cross. Help us live cross-centered lives and see the world through the lens of the cross. We know the cross ends in resurrection. Pray that the hope of the resurrection would guide us. Give us grace. Give us wisdom. Give us your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.